Uh, we've been considering Zechariah, and the, uh, this is our third uh, look at it. Uh, we <clears throat> have noticed in the opening chapters of Zechariah how Zechariah was the man who had such unusual visions. Uh, he saw a vision of a horseman among the myrtle trees in a low place, which uh, spoke to Israel, although Israel was a small tree in a low state. Uh, following the return here from captivity in Babylonian, uh, they come back, they uh, attempt to rebuild their city, rebuild the temple, and they are discouraged by their enemies. Work ceases, and then Haggai steps forward to say that now is the time. They've rebuilt their houses, and uh, now they're to rebuild God's temple, and that it's sinful to delay any longer. And uh, the people... Uh, Work. They respond to this message of Haggai. Then Zechariah steps forward to offer further encouragement as the people have a heart to work, but the, the obstacles and the enemies that they face are tremendous. And uh, he comes forward to give this picture of the divine horseman, the divine presence, in that uh, clove of small, that grove of small trees uh, representing the low state of Israel, but nonetheless, God was there watching. The divine presence. Then he spoke of the vision of the four horns and the four smiths that handle each of these horns, representing a different threat. The divine protection there for every obstacle and uh, every enemy, there was a divine agency at work to handle this. Uh, then again, the vision of the man with the measuring line. As he goes to measure the walls and he's told that there won't be any walls on this city. It's going to be too great, uh, the divine prosperity that will accompany uh, Israel's return. And then the uh, divinely provided cleansing for Joshua, as he saw a vision of the high priest clothed in filthy garments. And uh, Christ, or God, uh, speaks to him and uh, <clears throat> instructs an angel who stood by to clothe him in clean garments. And... Here we have the divinely provided purity for uh, the sinful nature, nation. Uh, all of these things in vision. Uh, last time we saw the vision of the candlestick, speaking of the office of Israel to bear light to the nations. And the great principle that was invoked, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Uh, Israel has called upon him to be a shining light, bearing testimony of the true God. How can she perform this immense function, this terrific responsibility? Not by might, not your might, not your power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And then the divine promise to Zerubbabel the governor uh, concerning the obstacles that he faced, that uh, the mountain shall become a plain in front of Zerubbabel as he follows this principle, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Tonight we want to look at uh, the <clears throat> remarkable prophecies that we find in the latter part of this book concerning the coming king. We had already picked up one very unusual prophecy uh, when uh, gold was brought by men who had returned from Babylon, from <clears throat> the dwellers in Babylon, the uh, foreigners. This gold... Uh, uh, the Zechariah was instructed to make into a crown and to take this crown and place it on the head of the high priest Joshua. 
The Hebrew word Joshua, incidentally, is our word, is the Greek word uh, Jesus. Uh, our word Jesus. Uh, place this on the head of the high priest, Jesus. Because the one who's going to come will be not only a priest but a king. He will be a priest upon his throne. You remember how the offices of priest and king were separated in Israel, but this pointed forward to the coming king who would also be a priest. And the fact that the gold was brought from a heathen land spoke of the fact that a part of his inheritance would be the heathen nations. They would go to make up his crown of jewels. And now further prophecies about this coming king in the ninth chapter and the ninth verse. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Here's the prophecy of the king who comes riding upon an ass. The context of this prophecy, when you look at the opening verse of chapter 9, the burden of the Lord in the land of Hadrach and Damascus, the burden of the Lord. The burden speaks of doom, doom coming upon the land of Hadrach. What land is this? No one knows. Uh, as far as it being uh, the name of a country. But when you examine the etymology of the word, it uh, probably comes from two words, chad meaning sharp, rack meaning soft, salt, sharp, soft. It's speaking of a nation, sharp, soft. The empire of the day was the Medo-Persian empire, the combination of the Medes and the Persians. And this combined kingdom had certain characteristics, as every kingdom does. It had produced great military leaders like Cyrus, Darius, but it had an effeminacy about it that was a byword among the nations of that day. Sharp, soft. Probably speaking of the empire, the Medo-Persian empire, headed for doom. Then he goes on to uh, detail the way in which this doom will come as he details the destruction of city after city that made up that empire, starting with the cities bordering on Israel. As he says uh, in the second verse, Hamath also shall border thereby, Tyrus, Zidon, and so on. Each of these strong cities shall feel this destruction, this burden. You know, you pick up an amazing thing here. It's a prediction, a prediction of the destruction of the Medo-Persian Empire, city by city, and he's tracing the very line of march of Alexander the Great in his conquest city by city. You know what happened when uh, Alexander got to Jerusalem? He didn't destroy Jerusalem. He had a dream. He had a dream that uh, God warned him to leave that city alone. And then the priest and the elders of the city came out and uh, they had something of a ceremony there and uh, he passed them by. 
And look at the eighth verse. As he's listed these cities that will be destroyed, verse 8, And I will camp and camp about mine house because of the army, because of him that passes by, and because of him that returneth. He went by, he came back. And God protected Jerusalem. Now you have a prediction about the destruction of this empire. It's a very exact prediction, and we could say that it's a prophecy of the coming of Alexander the Great and his Grecian Empire, which overthrew the Medo-Persian Empire. And yet, it's not exactly a, a prophecy of this, because in the seventh verse, you find something stated that never was fulfilled. I will take away his blood out of his mouth and his abominations from between his teeth, speaking of the destruction of these nations. But he that remaineth, even he, shall be for our God. Those that are left, the remnant, will turn to God, will be converted. And this didn't take place. And this guards us from thinking of this as exactly being a prophecy of Alexander's coming and conquest. But rather, it's a picture of the overthrow of Gentile, of non-Christian, of the kingdoms that are not God's kingdom, versus the conquest of his kingdom. Every other kingdom shall fall, but in the fall of the Gentile powers, that out of the fall of these powers, many of them, over the years, will turn to God. But God's kingdom and his king who will come, he will come and be victorious. There's a contrast being drawn between what shall happen to every non-Christian power and kingdom and what will happen to God's king and his kingdom when he comes. So we've got the context that this prophecy about the king coming to Jerusalem is placed in. In the ninth verse, rejoice greatly, O daughter of John, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass and upon a colt the foal of an ass. Notice the content of this prophecy. The description is given of the coming king. In his office, he is king of Zion. He is king of God's believing people. This is what Zion stands for. It stands for Jerusalem, but... Ultimately, it stands for the believing people of Jerusalem or of God in that day or in our day. If you're a Christian, you're a part of Zion, God's true Zion. His character, he is just. He is righteous in his reign versus an unrighteous ruler. He is powerful. He has salvation. He is able to save his people from their enemies, their real enemies, their spiritual enemies, death and guilt and Satan. Notice he is also amazingly lowly. He is lowly. He comes riding upon an ass. Uh, this was the, the steed of one who had no rank. And this king, as powerful as he is, as kingly as he is, yet he is humble, low of heart. He doesn't even ride upon an ass. He rides upon the foal of an ass. The effect 
of this king's coming, peace, an amazing peace that will spread throughout the world. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even unto the ends of the earth. When this king comes, he will be victorious. His kingdom shall spread and conquer every other kingdom and shall bring peace. The only peace that's worth having, the peace between God and men. And so we are exhorted, rejoice. Oh, praise God for this king who will come, you true believers, you daughters of Zion. The consummation of this prophecy, we're told in the New Testament, Matthew 21 and John 12, that this prophecy was fulfilled not just in general but in specific. When Jesus Christ rode in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on an ass, and the people cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David, Jesus Christ fulfilling this amazing prophecy speaking peace to you and to me, to the heathen, his dominion spreading throughout the world, every tongue and tribe and nation making up his people. And there's one prophecy. And then another prophecy that we want to take a brief look at, the shepherd who is rejected by his flock. First the king who rides upon an ass, now the shepherd who is rejected by his flock. In the 11th chapter, verse 4, Thus saith the Lord my God, feed the flock of the slaughter. As you read this passage, you find, first of all, the assumption of the flock by the shepherd. He takes care of the flock. He's commanded, he's commissioned by God, feed the flock of the slaughter. And our question immediately would come up, uh, to whom is this spoken? Who is this shepherd? Is this shepherd Zechariah? Uh, did Zechariah actually assume leadership, the shepherding position of the nation? No, that's not what is meant. There are those commentators who feel that this was literally acted out in some way, but I think probably what actually took place, this is uh, a visionary experience, an inner vision again of certain things taking place a prophetic dream. We've moved in time, incidentally, beyond, as you go through the book, beyond the conquest by Alexander of the Medo-Persian Empire to the rebellion of the Jews against the Grecian reign, against the Grecian rule. You remember that Alexander the Great's kingdom was broken up. He didn't live very long, died when he was, what, before he was 30 or something like that. And his kingdom split into four parts. Under one of these parts, uh, the Syrian, and uh, later the Seleucid reign, Israel fell. And they lived under it for a length of time until... This Hellenistic influence was so forced upon Israel that they corrupted their worship. And they tried to force them into the pattern of Grecian worship, 
They desecrated the temple. They set up false idols right in the heart of the temple. They carried uh, licentious practices into the temple. They, they offered swine on the altar of the temple. And finally, one old priest, Matthias. Matthias was called to come forward and offer one of those swine on the altar in a little town uh, nearby where an altar had been set up. He refused to do it. And then another Jew, afraid, went forward and did offer. And Matthias went over and killed this apostate Jew. And then he killed the uh, Grecian overlord. And he called his five sons and they started a rebellion against Greece. A tremendous rebellion. Look at the ninth chapter and the thirteenth verse. When I have bent Judah for me, filled the bow with Ephraim, with my people, and raised it up, and raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and made thee as the sword of a mighty man. In other words, you have here a prediction of this rebellion of the Jews against their Grecian overlords. We've moved on forward even from there to a new nation coming in with new rulers, the Roman Empire. This, too, we could find very clearly in here. And now it's at this point that we find the direction given to the shepherd to assume care of the flock who's being mistreated. And yet you notice what is called the flock appointed for slaughter because God knows what the flock will do. He knows what's happening to the flock. They are being slain at present. But he knows what they will do to their shepherd. Verse 4 of chapter 11. Thus saith the Lord my God, feed the flock of the slaughter. While directed to the prophet to take the shepherding of the flock, actually, as we go along, we find that this is a prediction of the coming Messiah, that he would shepherd the flock of God. And he would take care over them to protect them from those who misuse them. Verse 7, I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. And I took to me two staves. The one I called beauty, the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. The shepherd always had a club and a crook. The crook he used to help any sheep that was in trouble and to keep the flock together in a sense. And the club he used to protect it from the wild beasts that would prey on the flock. And this shepherd says, I had two staves, one beauty, the other bands, one favor that I would protect them from those around them who would hurt them, other nations, and the other I would bring about union within the nation, inner unity, protection from their enemies without. Thus did I shepherd the flock. But notice the abhorrence of the shepherd by the flock, as it says in uh, verse 8, Three shepherds also I cut off in one month 
three under-shepherds as they did not perform their function, this over-shepherd removed, being faithful to his task. But my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Although he was such a faithful shepherd, took such care of the sheep, yet they loathed him, and because they loathed him, he loathed them. And because of this mutual abhorrence, he abandons the flock. He terminates his care of the flock. Verse 9, Then said I, I will not feed you. That that dieth, let it die. That that is to be cut off, let it be cut off. And let the rest eat every one the flesh of another. And I took my staff, even beauty, protection from those enemies around, and I cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant which I had made with all the people, a covenant that he had made with these other nations, speaking of the, the way that he protected his people from their powerful enemies. And it was broken in that day, and so the poor, poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And I said unto them, If ye think good... Give me my price, and if not, forbear. We find that he abandons the flock. He leaves them to be preyed upon by their enemies. He breaks his other staff in the 14th verse, bands. He leaves them to internal disunity. And then he asks for his price, for his hire, officially severing the relation. If you think I'm worthy of any price, give it to me. If not, don't even pay me. Forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. That was the price of a slave who'd been gored by an ox. That was the value that they placed upon this shepherd. He speaks and says, uh, the Lord said unto him, Cast it to the potter, a goodly price, that I was prized at it of them. It's not worthy of you to consider. Throw it to the potter. What a tremendous picture of the great shepherd Jesus Christ in his relation to the nation of Israel. How he cared for her and bore her up over the years protected her from her enemies, and she loathed him. And the time came when he loathed her, and he abandoned her to her enemies, to internal discord, to the Roman armies. He asked his price, what do you value me at? <clears throat> and the officials of the nation, in a formal action, in effect, valued him at 30 pieces of silver. This 30 pieces of silver, we're told uh, in the New Testament, was cast down in the temple of the Lord, as it says here, cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord, and then was used to buy the potter's field, where those were buried who had no other burial spot. 
an amazing prophecy of the relationship between Jesus Christ and the nation of Israel, his final uh, termination of his relation as he abandoned them to their enemies. The value they placed on the relationship. What about us? What's happened to our nation? Our nation has had an amazing history. Has it been due to our prowess? Has it been due to our form of government? Has it been due to the natural resources of our nation? No. It's been due to the Lord Jesus Christ blessing our nation, protecting her from her enemies. Our nation for years has had a fantastic internal unity until recently. What's taking place? Is the shepherd terminating his relation because our soul loathed him? Has he finally come to loathe us? Does he have to turn from us in righteous judgment? It says that the poor of the flock, those true believers that waited upon me, knew that it was the word of the Lord. They knew what was taking place. I believe true believers in America today, they know what's happening. They know why it's happening. What about our denomination? Same. What about you and me? What do we value the Lord Jesus Christ at? What are we willing to swap for him? If you've never committed your life to him, you're swapping something for him. You're swapping uh, pleasure, or you're swapping the right to do what you'd like to with your life for him. That's the value you place upon him. He's not worth my real surrender to him. What is it that uh, you value the Lord Jesus at? What do you value that relation of shepherd? If you're going on in anything that you know not to be in his will, you're placing more value on that thing or that person or that relationship than your relationship with the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Maybe he will respond in like kind. You're showing your disregard of him. Maybe he'll come to disregard you. Don't trifle with this great shepherd. Amazing love. It requires all that we've got, such a shepherd. There's only one proper response that we can make, knowing who he was, knowing what he went through for us, knowing what it cost him to come having salvation. There's only one proper response. I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. If you've never really committed your life to Jesus Christ, I urge you tonight, before you go to sleep, settle the matter with this great shepherd. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank thee for our shepherd Jesus Christ, for the great king who came, who fulfilled each of these prophecies, giving such clear evidence of being who he claimed to be, the mighty Messiah, the Son of God. 
We thank thee for such amazing predictions in your book that outline not only the course of nations and uh, the rise and fall of great leaders and empires, but outline in detail what would happen when thy son didst come, so that we might know that thou, O God, didst write the scriptures through men, that they are true, that we might know that thou dost control everything that takes place in this world, so that we need not fear when we walk with thee. O God, do not break that staff of favor or beauty. Do not break that staff of union for our nation, for our denomination, for our church, Father. If there's any other way, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.